Blog Talk Radio. Pediatric Speech Language Pathologist, and welcome to today's podcast. Today, we're going to be continuing our series called 11 Skills Toddlers Must Use Before Words Emerge, and we're going to be talking about how to look for and help a child develop early play skills. But before we get to all that, let me do some announcements. Uh, first of all, let me just go ahead and plug once again the West Virginia Speech and Hearing uh, State Convention, which is going to be, well, I'm speaking on April 15th <laughs> on that Friday, and I've talked about it a couple of times, and I've already on the show, and I've gotten some emails about it saying, thank you so much for mentioning West Virginia and how much you love West Virginia. So I wanted to do that again, and I'll be back there, oh gosh, in two weeks. So I'm really, really excited about that. If you need more information about that, you can always just Google search or however you do your search engines by um, looking that up, the West Virginia Speech and Hearing Association uh, Convention or Conference 2016. Okay, that's the first announcement. Second announcement is this week I have been so busy writing, writing, writing for uh, – Teach Me to Talk for the website. Now, I've posted two of those articles. The first one is the truth about flashcards for toddlers who don't yet talk. The second one uh, I just posted yesterday is Parenting Difficult Toddlers. And I love both of these posts. And again, they've just been out for a couple days, and I've gotten so much feedback from parents who've said, I got an email from a dad who said, man, how you described your son, that is my wife's wife. She is doing exactly the same thing, living the same kinds of scenarios that you described with your own son. And again, this is written, that article was written from not only a therapist's perspective as a speech language pathologist, but from a mom. I had, have a, well, I shouldn't say that now, had a difficult child myself who is now 26 years old. So you will live if you are <laughs> currently feeling like, oh, this kid is, is hard. You'll both make it through, I promise. But I talked about temperament in that post and how important it is to understand your child's temperament, his inborn personality or really we're not even looking at personality we're looking at how he reacts to what's going on around him and events in his little world so take a look at that if you've not read that yet and especially if you're a parent and you do feel like again that the days are long and you are looking for strategies that might help you understand your child a little bit more I think that this post although it's not a book it's not you know going to solve every single situation or problem, but just to give you an overall sense of meeting your child where he is, really understanding him, and then a way, too, to kind of explain some of the things that are going on that make your little baby kind of hard to live with. So take a look at that. And the first one I mentioned that I think I published on Tuesday was about flashcards, and so you'll want to you'll read that. I did get an email from an early childhood um, provider who's Australia I believe and she said gosh I'm so happy to have this article because the teachers where I work as soon as they figure out that a kid is lower functioning cognitively they go straight for pictures and I've been trying to tell them pictures are too hard we should really be starting with real objects with play and things that are familiar with familiar activities. And so she was happy to have that explanation so that she could share that with those teachers and talk about why developmentally they're probably going about it the wrong way. And again, you can read that for yourself and think about uh, pictures as they're symbolic and why that might be hard for other toddlers or some toddlers. So take a look at those two posts. Uh, last week I mentioned <laughs> that I thought this week that we would have Visit Autism, um, that course on DVD completely ready to go. It's not ready, much to my dismay, but it will be soon. So keep listening for the pre-sale. And, again, if you're not on my email list, 
get on there because you'll get a special sale price and you'll get to get that before uh, purchase it before the release date at that special price. So be sure that you're on my email list. And if you don't know how to do that, let me just tell you one more time. Go to teachmetotalk.com. Scroll down to the beautiful green banner, which is depending on what device you're using, it's just right under that initial or those first little categories there. And it says sign up now in blue, enter your name, enter your email address, push on that, you'll get a confirmation back that you have to confirm that you or, or agree to that you want to be on the list. You'll get a free ebook, which is the Parent's Guide to Understanding Speech-Language Development, which is really, really good if you've not looked at that. If you're a parent, again, it'll help you kind of understand the hierarchy of early language development, what comes first, what kinds of things we're more concerned about, kind of gives you a list of red flags, too. If you're a therapist, I promise you will use that resource over and over and over and over with your new parents to helping them really understand, you know, that we can't start working on speech intelligibility until the child uses talks, until he uses some words, real words, a lot of words, and then we can't really work on that until he understands some words. But we can't even work on that until he's socially engaged. So it's a nice, nice way to think about and teach and educate parents with that whole hierarchy of early language development. And you get that just for signing up um, to be on the email list. And then, again, the, the Folks who are on the email list get first notice for everything. So I wanted to mention that. All right, let's get to today's topic with early play skills. Learning to play with toys and beginning to use objects functionally is a skill that emerges with first words right along the same time. So it's a super, super important marker for us to look at. And again, this is number five on the list that we've been talking about for several weeks here. And it, uh, we'll talk about as we proceed with the show just how this relates to language development. But let me stop before I get too far ahead of myself and, and talk about what I just said. Everybody gets learning to play with toys. We know what that looks like. We know what that means. But sometimes when we say to parents, begin to use objects functionally, you, know, you can kind of see the glazed look, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? That is a little too fancy. That means is that a kid begins to use an object in the way it's intended. So... Let me just kind of give you a test. What do you do with a toy car? You push it. You roll it, right? You drive it. What do you do with a ball? You roll it or you throw it. We can even use some of these examples from daily routines, from real life. What would a kid do with a spoon if he saw it? What, does he just twirl it around in the air? Hopefully he would put it to his mouth like he's taking a bite. Or better yet, if he's a little further along, he would pretend to stir with it. He'll, he'll get a little bowl and act like he's stirring something up. Um, when he sees a pair of shoes, or let's just talk about this, every day do you have to force his shoes on his feet or is he understanding, gosh, those go on my feet. Does he try to help you with getting his little shoes in there? Does he, when he sees your shoes, does he try to put your shoes on his feet? Does he get it? Does he understand, hey, that's where they go. That's what these things are for. So we try to look for uh, functional object use, meaning how does, does he know what something is for, the purpose, and does he try his best to use the toy or the object in that way? And again, we're not talking about really complex or complicated kinds of play or object use today. We're just talking about performing familiar actions, and again, both with toys and real-life objects. Uh, play is such, oh my gosh, it's such an expansive topic. It's complicated. It's complex. I have worked on a book about play forever that I'm still not completely happy with. But again, we're, we're not there yet. We're not talking about all those various levels, all of the fantastic pretend play that we see later with children or role playing like dress up or playing with other children. We're not talking about of that today, we're boiling it down to very, very, very basic play. So I want you to keep that in mind. And remember what the purpose of, of this series of podcasts is to talk about the skills that toddlers have to use before words emerge. So we're really, really talking about the kinds of play that we see from babies and toddlers in that 9 to 18 month range. So we're not thinking about 
easy bake ovens or <laughs> playing with the Batman uh, house and lots and lots of characters, we're going to go much, much easier than that. Let me stop and talk about why play is super, super important. It is the very best way to determine how a child's cognitive skills are developing. And remember what cognitive skills are. Cognition is how a kid thinks. It's how he remembers. How he learns. It's how he puts all those things together in his little brain and makes associations and links information together. All right? So play, again, is, is how we know that a toddler gets all that, how he demonstrates really, really early cognitive concepts. You know, we can't really say to a toddler, please demonstrate for me all of the cognitive skills that you've acquired in this 18 months or 24 months. You know, it doesn't happen like that. So we have to observe them. We have to watch carefully for what they know how to do. And let's just talk about three of the most important concepts or early cognitive skills that we're going to look for that let us know that a child is on his way to establishing a really strong foundation for understanding the world around him. So um, learning, again, from this nonverbal perspective is really, really crucial. And let me just share this quote with you. I've recently found it in all my reading about learning and, and not so much about cognition but mostly about um, from a behavior analyst approach. This is from a book called Learning, and it's by Charles Catania. And I just love this quote, and it was so um, important to me that I've put it, I've gone back and put it in a couple of the courses that I teach because I think it really, really illustrates speech language pathologists often overlook or parents overlook because we're so concerned about like talking that we forget about the things that have to come first. So let me just share this quote and I'll read it here. It says, we cannot do anything with words until they are built on what was there before words existed. Did you get that? What does that mean to you? Well, to me, it means you can't get to words yet <laughs> until you've established that a child is learning some other things in more concrete ways. If we think about language, language is really symbolic, meaning that words stand for something else. And so... <laughs> We have to look at, you know, when a kid's not doing that, we have to, as I always say, back up. We have to look at what comes first. And, again, those nonverbal learning experiences are what we really, really need to focus on. And experiences which would include play and then anything a kid does during the day, whether he's eating or taking a bath or playing, you know, running outside or riding in the van or whatever it is that you do with your child or, or parent or a family does with their child, those experiences are how we teach a toddler every single thing that he needs to know. And so for some of these kids, too, who don't play, that we're not seeing much evidence of that, we've got to teach them that, too. And again, it's only through, through really, really sitting down and doing it. And sometimes, you know, parents will say, he just doesn't like to play. I think it's because, you know, I just haven't found a toy yet that he likes that's usually not it. There's usually more going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, let me just say, too, I'm just going to put it out on the table here and be super, super honest with you. When I first began my practice as a pediatric speech language pathologist, I didn't get this as clearly as I understand it now after 23 years. I thought that I was really using play to teach language, and so I kind of looked at it as a strategy. But, guys, for so many toddlers, that's where we start. They're nonverbal. They're not to that. They're really, really, really not there yet as far as really being ready to learn what words mean and how to talk yet. So we have to back up and teach that play piece first. And, again, another real reality check, we do not learn that in grad school as speech pathologists. So that might be new to you as a parent. You might be thinking, well, surely, surely this therapist who comes to my house every week has taken some courses on how to teach a kid to play. Uh-uh. <laughs> that did not and does not happen. 
you know, that again, we kind of look at it as more of a strategy rather than the nuts and bolts of really teaching a kid to understand what's going on when he's playing with a new toy. And our colleagues who are occupational or our friends who are educators, who are developmental therapists or developmental interventionists or special uh, special instructors or EI specialists, whatever you call them in your state, those disciplines may be a little more or have a little bit more direct training with teaching a child how to play than a speech pathologist would. But listen, as an SLP, if you have worked for more than two weeks, I bet that you have figured out. <laughs> Hopefully, if you're working with toddlers in an early intervention program, how important play is. And again, if you've just if you've not prioritized that yet as a formal goal or something that you are really, really, really going to work on and target, if you've just kind of looked at it as extra or the way that you get to language, that's not an entirely terrible view. And it's certainly one that I shared for many, many years early in my career. But now I've really, really learned you've got to go after the play piece first, and you really have to be pretty direct about how you teach these uh, early, beginning, basic play skills. Now, play emerges in the same way that the other skills, sort of like we've talked about over the last few weeks. So remember what we talked about last week? We talked about joint attention. And remember what we said about joint attention? You can't have joint attention until you have the first three skills that we talked about in this series, until you learn to respond to events in your environment, until you learn to respond to people, and until you develop uh, a basic attention span. And so, again, remember we said that joint attention is built on those three things. So you can't get to joint attention until you've acquired those earlier skills. And that's how play is, too. There's a progression. And so it starts really, really early in infancy. And those skills are built week after week after week and month after month until the kid is up to the point where he can play with toys. So let's kind of walk through this, and again, this is just explanatory so that as a parent you can kind of wrap your head around what may have happened if your child is not yet playing with toys. And as a therapist, gosh, guys, you better know this. <laughs> you better understand, you know, it's not that a kid just suddenly learns how to build a toy house with some blocks and put some animals in there. You know, there's things that have to come first. So let's walk it way, 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 way back to the very beginning. So how does play begin even with a baby, even in the first, in the first few weeks of life? Well, first he learns how to grasp an object with his very uncoordinated little hand. So that whole little fist that had previously been uh, clutched or tight, he's held it, held his fingers together and his thumb together, and he suddenly has learned that I can open this and then stick something in that little hand and then hold it. And then what happens next? He usually tries to get that object to his mouth. And what happens kind of as as he's learning that? Then he learns it's not only cool to suck that object and mouth it. Hey, how about I look at it too? So we all he starts to kind of hold that object out, and you can see a baby visually explore, and what I mean by that is he, he watches it. He's, he's just really into it, looking at it, looking at it, looking at it. After several weeks of that, he tries to get even more creative, and he begins to try to purposefully manipulate that object. And again, this is in a very simple, simple manner. We're talking about a baby. He's only a few months old, so what might he do? He might try to shake the rattle, right? Or uh, let's do a real-life example. What about when a baby, when he's about mm, five, six, seven months old, he, what does he start to do with his little hands when he's um, drinking from a bottle? He tries to hold the bottle himself, right? He starts to put his hands up on the bottle, like mom or dad or whoever's giving him that bottle doing, right? He begins to use his hands that way in a really, really purposeful way. He tries to reach for the little toys that are hanging down on the baby gym. You know, the little baby gyms that... Um, they're on little poles, and they're designed for the baby to be placed on his back on the floor, and you have the the little strings or, or pieces of material hanging down, and there could be several little toys. What does he start to do? He tries to grab those. He tries to reach for them. He tries to hit them and uh, hold them. A lot of babies will try to get those things in their mouth. So, again, can you see how this is progressing? Can you see how that child is learning week after week after week? to do something a little more mature here. Let's talk about when he gets a little more mobile 
when a kid learns how to move by himself and he first begins to roll, and not those first little attempts where he's kind of shocked that he's done it, <laughs> but really purposeful rolling so that he can get himself somewhere else, and then eventually he learns how to what? Creep. So he's kind of commando crawling, as I like to think about that. And eventually he begins to walk. And again, why? you know, there's so much discussion when you really kind of think about development in infancy and, you know, why does a child learn how to walk? Well, you know, some theories are that it's so he can explore his environment, and that really is kind of a cognitive uh, way to think about it, that exploration piece. So motor drives cognition and cognition drives motor, and there's I think about it kind of as a circular pattern here. So a kid sees something he likes and he thinks, I have to get that. How can I move my body in so that I can reach that cool thing. And then he begins to explore even more. He discovers new things that he can do with that cool object that he's finally managed to get. And again, because of that practice with using, with, with exploring and using his hands or his body in a different way, he, he refines his motor development, right? He gets more and more skilled. And then because he's more and more skilled, he learns even more things about that object and figures out other ways to use that object. So you see how all that works together? That's how play develops. And again, it's not that all of a sudden when he's 12 months old, he's, he's discovered toys. And that, you know, play starts when you're, you know, 12 months, two weeks, and two days old. It's built on all of these earlier things. And we have to see evidence that a child here is learning to learn, that he, that he knows how objects, he's, he's watched mom and dad. He's figured out what they are doing with an object, and he tries to copy that and learn that. And, again, how do we know all this is happening? We watch him. We observe him. We see that play mature. Let me talk about another reason that play is so important. It's how, and I mentioned this earlier, but let's kind of dive into this. Play is how children learn to be symbolic, and let's talk about what symbolic means. Symbolic means that a child learns, hey, one thing represents something else. And why is this important to language development? And I said it earlier, but I'm going to say it over and over and over again. Words are symbols. So we have to help the child move toward becoming symbolic. And, again, this is not something that just happens, like I just gave that example with play, you know, with at 12 months, two weeks, and two days. It's not like that. It's a progression. It's a gradual process. Um, and again, the words being symbols, this is the example I like to tell parents. A ball isn't really a ball or innately a ball. It's just what we call it, right? That's the word that we all learned for that. That's the symbol that we've all agreed <laughs> that we're going to call that round object that we can roll or but we can't really begin with that symbolic piece. We have to back it up because, remember, symbolic is abstract, meaning that it's more complex. We've got to start with what comes before that, which would be learning in a concrete way or um, in a way that's very, very um, direct. And that's what we're talking about here, how to use objects functionally, how to play with toys in the way that they're intended. All right, um, we, we have to look at this concrete progression of play too. And again, some therapists think about this. Instead of using words like concrete, they'll call it pre-symbolic play. And symbolic play, guys, what would that mean? That would mean that a kid has learned that one object can represent another. So remember how we said earlier that here we would be looking for eventually that a kid, you know, would take a spoon and stir it in a bowl. Well, when he becomes symbolic, he might use anything to pretend that it's so he's just going to pick up something off the floor and know, and you know, in his little mind, think, oh, that can be a spoon. It might be a pen. Have you seen a kid do that where he sort of stirs with a pen or a pencil or a drumstick or a stick, any stick where you can see, oh, he's pretending that's a spoon. He's become symbolic. But again, we can't start there. We've got to start with things that are more basic and things that come first. So let's talk about three early cognitive concepts 
and uh, and they are object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving. And and the reason these are important, these are the three big milestones that we look for in children who are nine to twelve months old in typical development. And as these skills emerge, what else happens? Words emerge, so they go together. So that's why it's really really important. And again, this is what we're looking for at this level. And so instead of me saying we look for the development of cognitive skills. Play skills are how you look for this, and play skills are how you teach this. So let's go through these milestones one by one, and let me give you some ideas of what to look for to determine if your kid's here yet, and then some ideas that you can use if a child is not there. And remember with this audience, sometimes I think it's funny that therapists forget who are talking to me about the show, that parents listen to this show. And sometimes parents will kind of talk to me and say, well, you sort of sounded like you were talking to a therapist then. I thought the show was for parents. Hey, it's both. <laughs> we have a real mixed audience here, and I love that. And it's not just one particular kind of therapist. You know, this show isn't just for speech-language pathologists. But we have therapists of all disciplines. I routinely get emails from psychologists who are in other countries who are I'm the only game in town for working with children with autism in their particular parts of the world. And so they are searching for early information, for information about language, early language development in this toddler and early preschool period. So again, some of this, if you're a therapist, might seem pretty basic and pretty repetitive. But remember, we've got some moms listening who've never thought about things like object permanence and cause and effect. So let's talk about what these concepts are. And then more importantly, let me give you some ideas for how to see if the child that you are concerned about can do these things. And then even beyond that, what you can do if they are not um, using some early play skills. So let's start with object permanence. What does that mean? Object permanence means an object exists even when you can't see it. So does a child look for a toy after you've hidden it or after you've covered it with a blanket? Does he know that it's still there or, you know, is it out of mind? Some kids are like that. As a parent, sometimes it's good like that. We hide things, don't we? <laughs> we don't want them to remember. We don't want them to try to, you know, consistently go after the remote. So we put it where they can't see it, and we hope they forget about it. But really, object permanence is super, super important. And why that's important is you want a kid to hold that little mental picture in his mind of what that object is, and listen, if he can't do that, there is no way that he's ready to remember what a word means or link something like ball. We've been using that as our example today. He can't know what the word ball means until he understands how to play with it, and even before that, that it's not gone just because he can't. Okay, so object permanence is super, super important. Let me give you a more real-life example about object permanence. Does a child try to find his pacifier or his bottle or his sippy cup after he's dropped it? So if he's in his high chair and he drops his spoon, does he look for it over the edge? Or if he's in his car seat and you're driving and he lets out a whale because the pacifier has fallen from his mouth. Does he know that he can use his own little hand to kind of scrounge around, you know, down there underneath his legs to feel for it and see if see if he can get it himself, okay? Tell you that he understands object permanence. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um, let me tell you something that I do, a trick that I use all the time. And as therapists, you know, we evaluate children, and we're really used to hiding things under blankets or diapers. For cloth diapers or scarves or something like that. Here's how I assess object permanence. I just take something that a kid is holding or playing with or paying attention to, and I stick it like in the little uh, leg of his pants or in the sleeve of his shirt, and I'll see, does he go for it? Does he remember that it's there? Or if I'm pretty brave and feeling kind of skinny, <laughs> I might put it under my own shirt, you know, and see if he's going to try to pull it out and find it there. Those are indicators that he really gets and understands object permanence. So just try it. Try it with some things today if you're not sure about your kid or if he understands it. If he doesn't understand it, what do you do? You work on it. 
So let me give you some ideas that have been successful for me. Here's how I start with a kid who obviously doesn't understand object permanence. Like he had, he, you know, once I hide it, again, it's like the object is forever gone. He has no interest in pursuing where it might be. So what do you do? You partially cover the object. So if I've been sitting with him and we're playing, and if I put the, you know, little character or farm animal or ball or, you know, tiny little ball, whatever we've been using in his, the leg of his pants, in his little blue jeans, and he doesn't immediately try to get down there and get it, what I might do is pull it out a little bit so that it's sticking out so that he can see it, and we'll try it that way. Or if we are using something more traditional like covering a toy with a little blanket or something, leave part of it uncovered. See if he'll try to get it then. Another thing that I've done that's been pretty successful is use a toy with lights or sounds so that he can see it or he can hear it even when it's covered up. And, again, that's giving him more information. And he, you can sort of start to see a little look on his face. It's like, hey, that's only it's there, even if I can't see it anymore. And they start to really search for it then. Other little things you can do, you know, hide your face as you're, you know, playing peekaboo or singing a little song and then, you know, uncover your face or cover yourself with a blanket or a scarf or a, you know, cloth diaper or, you know, anything, a towel, anything you have lying around right there. These ideas sound super, super simple, but they work. They really, really work. And that's how you would work on object permanence. One time many years ago I had a little boy with significant developmental delays, had a lot of motor challenges, had some um, just all kinds of things. Certainly his language delayed, you know, pretty significantly, and he was still really, really uh, fascinated with his hands and watching his hands and putting his hands in his mouth, and he was probably two, two and a half, and, you know, I thought, okay, this is where we're going to start way back here at these early, early cognitive concepts, so for object permanence, I started by just kind of covering up his hand when he was looking for his hand to put it in his mouth to see, and gosh, that really worked. He, he realized pretty quickly, hey, I want to get that uh, we used just like a dishcloth. We were in the kitchen, and I just it was on the table. So I just you know had that that stroke of an idea, like let me just stick this on his hand and see what it'll do. And he learned how to do that. He learned how to use you know shake it off and find his hand, and then use that other eventually hand to pull that cloth off so he could get that hand in his mouth without having to have that dish towel in his mouth too. So think about, you know, think about what you can do there. All right, let's move on. I could spend all all the whole show talking about how to teach object permanence, but we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's keep going. What was the next cognitive milestone that I mentioned? Remember, we had object permanence, and then we had what? It was cause and effect. All right, what does cause and effect mean? This means that a child performs an action, and he waits to see the result, indicating that he caused that to happen. So talk about this with a toy. For example, you might have, say, a pop, that pop and pals toy toy or, or even something like a really simple jack-in-the-box where you're pushing the button and then a toy appears. Okay, after you show him how to do it, does he try to do it? Does he duplicate your actions? Does he push it and then look for the result or look for the effect? Does he like that Mickey popped up? in the Disney Pop and Pals toy? Does he, does he, if it's a farm animal toy, does, is he looking at the cow once the little door opens and the object appears, okay? So we have to have both parts of that. Now, some kids, and I call this, and again, it's kind of a non-professional term, but boy, do parents get it. I'll say he understands the cause, but he does not get the effect piece, meaning that, hey, he's a push. He likes to push, but he really could not care at all with what happens after he pushes that button. So this kid, it's all about the pushing or the initial movement. I saw this happen just this week. I have a little guy that I'm working with who's turning four who is on the spectrum. And we have been doing lots and lots and lots of um, structured teaching. I started working with him last July, and he's a kid who does not like toys at all didn't really enjoy participating with that for his mom and dad. And then, again, it was just for a few little things. So we've worked really, really, really hard on expanding his social engagement skills, so getting him playing with mom and dad, doing lots of those fun things. And now we've, you know, been pretty quickly after a month or so, 
we moved on to trying to play with toys that did not work, really, really not interested in toys. And, again, sometimes parents will say he doesn't like toys, and, guys, that's not it. He did not understand toys. He did not get how to play with anything because from a cognitive perspective, he's just not ready, and because it doesn't make any sense to him, he doesn't want to do it, and then he's not motivated because there's nothing in it for him. So do you get how all that kind of works together? So we backed up to do some structured teaching tasks. And, again, we're not going to be able to talk about that today because – once again, I could do a whole series of shows just on structured teaching, but here's my point about this. We're doing some shoebox tasks now that are from a great um, company in North Carolina. It's a, a pretty structured program in that, you know, you order these little materials that are, well, not little, you order this fantastic set of shoebox tasks that are already done for you that target various skills and, and remember with structured teaching what we're trying to do is capitalize on a child's visual interest so things that are fun for him and pretty simple motorically and so we've worked through this whole progression of skills and again you can make a lot of these I've, I've done a ton of homemade versions of these kinds of things and you can look at homemade simple games in uh, therapy tips of the week that I've done on YouTube if you've not ever checked those out but those are uh, that's a fun kind of series for you to look at for different kinds of toys but back to Drew, he's learned how to how to get through a series of activities now because we've really taught him how to do it. With he'll get a big reward if he does several things in a row. And for Drew, his big reward has been watching television. But now we've discovered that he loves helium balloons. And so before his visit every week, I've, the last couple of weeks I've been going to Kroger on my way there and getting a new balloon because boy will he work for that balloon when other things haven't worked. So he has to do his little task to get the balloon. Here's what's happening now, and his mom and I were talking about this this week. He understands I have to do these tasks, which again, they're really simple motor things like put the object or this week we're talking about buttons. We have this one task that's uh, it's a, a box, and then there's a long, clear tube that's pretty tall, and we fill it with water, and there are about 10 big red buttons that he puts in the slot of the tube, To and, and the, the hope is, the, the main goal is that he will watch the button as it floats down the water. And again, it's a way to increase his attention to task and his participation. Well, Drew has learned, I just have to get through this task and then I can get the reward. So, boy, he doesn't even watch the buttons. He is so skilled now at just putting one button in, and he just wants to do it as fast as he can without watching it. And so I'm talking to his mom again about things like motivation and stuff, and she says, Laura, he doesn't under, he doesn't see it yet. He doesn't understand it. To him, I think what's going on is he just wants to get finished. And, boy, she was right. So same kind of example. He gets the first part, the cause part, or the initial step in the activity, but he doesn't really understand what comes next, all right? So we have to really look for that with kids with cause and effect. Uh, And again, so many toys are out there on the market to teach cause and effect. Anything basically with a button or a handle where a kid has to do some kind of motor movement so that he can get something else to happen, that's what you would want to do. My favorite cause and effect toys are listed on the homepage at teachmethetalk.com in an article called First Sessions Toy List for Toddlers in Speech Therapy. And so if you want to get some ideas for some, you know, no-fail toys, some toys that I've had. And they're not grouped in these categories like by cause and effect, but you'll be able to figure it out when you look at that list of toys. So check that out for ideas. All right, the last skill we're going to talk about here uh, is in this little, remember we're talking about those three basic cognitive skills that children master before words emerge. It's developing simple problem solving. And, again, tons of toys out there to teach this skill. Any kind of toy like a shape sorter or a ring stacker or simple puzzles teach basic problem solving because the child has to learn to get the correct object in the right spot. All right? So that's what we're doing here. So, again, where's the problem solving piece? What happens if he tries to put the triangle where the circle is supposed to go? It doesn't fit. So then what does he have to do? He has to think, well, that doesn't work. What should I do next? I should look for the spot where the triangle will fit. So can you see how we call that simple problem solving? There's a problem. The shape would not go where it's supposed to go. 
So we have to figure out how to make that happen. Uh, and you can, again, look at my favorite kinds of problem-solving toys there in the article that I mentioned, that first session's toy list for toddlers. But there's so many things, so many toys out there that can teach simple problem-solving. So you really want to look for that. Now, if you are a speech pathologist and you're thinking, hey, I did not learn this in grad I know about cognition and these things that you're talking about, but nobody really taught me how to teach this. Get a copy of my therapy manual called <laughs> Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. There's a whole chapter in there that will give you tons of great, great ideas for teaching these early play skills with toys so that you are not just kind of lost. And so you're not floundering thinking, well, I know what you're talking about on an academic level, but, boy, I do not know how to talk to a parent about this. you know, Or I know how to... Look for these kinds of toys, but I don't really know how to teach a kid how to do this or firmly understand why I should be doing it. So get yourself a copy of the therapy manual and read about that. All right, so we've talked a little bit about this, but I want to I mention it again here because it's so important. Remember when I said that sometimes when a child is not playing with toys, and I've heard this over and over and over again, I'll ask a mom, what does he like to play with? And they'll say, Nothing. I just cannot find anything that he likes. And so mom has convinced herself that it's not that, you know, that the only thing is she has not scrounged the world hard enough <laughs> to find something that her child will like. And if you're a mom in that situation, let me just tell you, probably not the problem. It's that he doesn't understand how to use it or how to play with it. So what do we do? We have to teach him. And so many parents have said to me before, you know, I really did not believe you on that day when you were trying to talk to me about that it's not that he didn't like toys, he just didn't understand toys. I really thought that you were just kind of blowing smoke here. And then after weeks, sometimes months, of working and working and working to teach a child how to master some of these early toys that we're talking about, then they understand, you know, you were right. He, he he didn't know how to play, and I didn't really get that. I thought it was something else. I thought that he just didn't like it or that, it, it you know, it didn't motivate him or whatever you want to think. So let, let, me, let me also kind of take it a step further back. So if you're a mom and you're thinking, you know, all right, you, you talked about some different toys here and you've given me some examples, but I don't think my child's ready for that. Or you might be a therapist who's thinking, well, Laura, I have this one kid who's not there yet. You know, he's lower functioning than that. I've tried some of that stuff, and it just doesn't work. What, what should I do? You know, and, again, if you're a mom, I'm not telling you, well, get yourself back out to Walmart or Toys R Us this afternoon and just try harder. That's not it. And it's what I said before, and, again, if you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time or if you've attended one of my live courses or seen one on DVD, you've heard me say this. Back. We've got to back up and work at the step that comes just before this step, just before a kid might be ready for object permanence and problem solving and cause and effect, and that would be container play. What's container play? And, again, this is pretty basic. So if you're a speech pathologist and, you know, you're not going to have a ton of kids who have to start here. This is really, really early. And if you're a mom, you may have a two-year-old that's not talking and think, okay, this is not the problem. He, he can do that. And so... If that's you, fantastic. You do not have to start here with every child, and that's my point. But for kids who, again, who that you, you're thinking, he doesn't like anything, I, I don't know what I'm going to do here, look at how he does with container play. And so what is container play? That's where you fill a bucket or a pan or any kind of container. I really like those white boxes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like from Huggies or Pampers or something that has baby wipes in them, you know, that you use to change a baby's diaper, clean a baby as you're changing a diaper. I like that because, you know, it has a top and you can close it. It's pretty small and you can contain it. So just put a variety of objects in there, small objects. Now, again, be careful that the kid can't swallow it. You don't want to have a choking hazard here. But just fill it with lots of those kinds of objects, things that a kid can see that would be interesting to feel that he can you get some different textures in there. It really, really does begin there. So if I have a kid who doesn't like toys, and if I feel like some of the structure teaching activities that I mentioned a second ago are still too high of a level, this is where we start. And, again, do I spend a ton of time doing this in therapy? 
at the beginning, yeah, because I want to teach mom how to do it. And I want to, I want to tell her, you know, several times a day we're going to set this out and we're just going to really see how he begins to explore a variety of objects here and see if we can get that attention span going and see if we can get that responding to his environment going. And remember, those are skills that we've talked about in previous weeks. And so th that's just an idea. And again, this is not applicable for every single child. You're going to have lots and lots of children who blow past this and who are, are ready for the things that we talked about, that we've just talked about, or even beyond that. So again, this is just an idea for those of you who think, oh, that's still too high level for the child I'm talking about or thinking about. So I just wanted you to know about that. All right, so let's talk about what we do next. I gave you some examples of kind of the skills that we're looking for with our cognitive skills that we've talked about, but let's talk about the nuts and bolts, kind of how you do it, all right? So we're thinking about how we would develop early play. So here's another really key point that we have to remember. We have to make sure that a child shows interest in a variety of familiar toys that work in different ways. Key word here is variety, all right? So let's think about this. Let me... Let me just, let's go back and do that really familiar example that we've used the whole show. Let's talk about a ball. What do you do with a ball? If I asked you that, what would you say? Well, we can roll it, we can throw it, we can kick it, we can bounce it. You know, those are what, about four actions right there? Four different actions we can do with a ball. That's what I'm talking about. We have to have a variety. A child has to understand, you know, I'm, I'm playing with the ball. I'm, I can do several things with the ball. Right. And again, if a kid, if you see that a kid likes a ball, if he has a ball that he routinely throws or, or rolls or whatever he does with it, just think, okay, this is how he's playing with it one way. Let me teach him some variety here. If he only throws it, let's try to teach him how to roll it. If, he, if it's a ball that you can bounce, you know, if he's not ever done that before, show him how to bounce it. You might do some other things with it. You might do something as simple as, you know, getting out a laundry basket and throwing it in the laundry basket. If a parent has a little basketball hoop there, you know, that they've used, and you can get those, gosh, for a buck or two at Dollar Tree or um, Walmart or somewhere like that. You know, put the little hoop up and see if you can get him to throw it in there. You're going to teach him that there are different ways that he can use that ball, all right? And, again, look at this. There are a ton of ball toys out there. My two favorite ones are a ball and hammer toy. And, again, almost every company that makes toys and manufactures toys for children has some version of a ball and hammer toy. And the hammer is a little bit more complicated because they're learning how to use a tool, and that usually comes in between 12 and 15 months. So you may have some kids who developmentally are still down there hanging around that 9 to 12-month level cognitively or motorically, and they're not going to be able to do the hammer part yet. That's okay. Put the ball in the hole and watch it go down, pull it out of the toy, and do it again. All right? So, again, that's your variety there. You, you've expanded what that child can do with the ball. I have another great toy by Tommy or Tommy. I think that's how our had an Asian family that told me, gosh, you know, in our uh, Japanese company, um, and, you know, they pronounced it Tommy. In, in America, I think we're still saying Tommy there. Um, old ball toy, I don't think it's made anymore, but it's, uh, there might be other, ver I think there are newer versions of it that are made by uh, parents or Imaginarium, that line of toys. But it's uh, kind of a bowl and you uh, like a gumball machine. So you put the ball in the top and you pull the lever and the toy, the, the ball comes out. So again, another variety there. The kid doesn't just put the ball in, he has to pull the handle to get it out. So another way to expand play, using a child's interest, he already likes the balls, but we're teaching him a new action. So we've got some more variety in there. Let's use another example. Let's think about something else that's super, super familiar. Uh, what about blocks? All right. What can a kid do with blocks? Well, how does block play um, emerge? Or how does it, what's the sequence? What can you do with blocks? What, what would a really younger baby do? Bang the blocks together, right? They're going to put them together at midline. Kind of clap the blocks, all right? That would come first. Put them in and out of the container. So we've got two things. Now, if you went immediately to stack the blocks, <laughs> oh, I want you to think about developmentally how, how 
again, skills really, really emerge. A kid is not just going to start by stacking. He's not. He may not be there yet. Now, if you have a kid who can stack, well, you know he's already done these other things. So you don't really have to go back and make sure he can do it. Don't do that either. But remember my phrase before when I said back up? If you have a kid who's can't, who can't stack yet, back it up. See if he can put those blocks in and out of the container. Can't do that. Back it up. See if he can bang them together, all right? Now, we all know the number one fun thing to do with blocks for toddlers is what? Knock them down after you've built the tower or after he's built the tower. But, again, let's think about that. There were four different things that that child can do with a block. So you see how that variety is built? And block toys are just like ball toys. Um, lots of toy manufacturers have different versions Fisher uh, of a block toy. Fisher-Price has a lot of um, toys for babies and toddlers that involve blocks. I think there, I have a couple. I have one that's a giraffe that you put the block in the giraffe's mouth, and then it, you know, you can fill up the giraffe's neck, and then it comes out the giraffe's backside. <laughs> uh, you can look for any kind of variety there. And, again, you can stick with wooden blocks or cardboard blocks. I did a, a therapy tip of the week about, cardboard blocks or are really all a lot of different variety of blocks in 2014. So go back and look at those videos and you can find that at teachmetotalk.com. Just look at their look for therapy tip of the week, the category there. Click it and you can see all those videos in a row. Or if you're already on YouTube, search Teach Me to Talk or Laura Eyes and you can uh, see those uh, all of those videos that I've done for years and years. And so look, look for that little series on blocks because I think it's five or six uh, different blocks that I've, kinds of block toys that I went through and get some different ideas. And again, we're not just, we've kind of taken a toy-like a toy blocks or a toy-like balls and we've talked about expanding the variety with that one single toy, which is fantastic. But you've also get a, got to get a variety of toys that you play with too. So we can't just play with balls, and you can't just play with blocks. You know, you want a kid to have a wide repertoire of toys that he can play with. Um, so look for that and think about that too. So let's let's get another kind of toy. We talked about shape sorters or these uh, puzzles, simple problem-solving toys. And again, what's our activity? What's our movement that we're trying to do there? We're putting objects in and out. And, you know, that's another kind of action that we haven't, we've sort of talked about it with the balls and the blocks, but certainly with toys like shapes, orders, and puzzles, that's the main kind of action that we're going for. And there's so many toys out there right now. Uh, if you'll just go to the store and stand there at Target or wherever you buy your toys and really look at the variety uh, available to you, look for... Um, more novel things. Now, families may have a certain kind of shape. And I know a lot of state programs really talk about not taking in new toys or, or you know, taking your own toys and really using what a family has available. And I'm not knocking that, but we certainly should educate parents and let them know why we're looking for a variety in play skills here. We want to expand a child's cognitive skills. We're working to teach him to be, work towards, uh, symbolism so that we can get him to the point where he is capable of understanding and using words. So again, we have to develop a broad range of skills. So talk talk to parents about that and about looking for different varieties of toys because parents don't get that. They think, well, I already have one shape sorter. I, I really don't understand why you would want me to buy two. And so you can really explain that with them. Let me tell you about a new shape sorter that I just found. I went to a Carol Westby seminar a couple weeks ago, and Carol Westby, it's just one of my uh, idols, for lack of a better word. Um, she's been a mentor of mine, and even though she has not known me, because I've been looking at her symbolic play scale for years and years and years and years. So I heard that she was going to be in Louisville, and I went to her conference a few weeks ago, which was really fun. I got to talk to her and tell her how much I liked her work. And um, she, the conference was on play that part of it and how play leads to literacy. But we are not talking about that. We're just talking about the play part today. But she showed a cute shape sorter that I had not really, really knew. It's by Infantino, which is that company, I-N-F-A-N-T-I-O-I-N-O. And you can get it on Amazon. It's where I got it. And it's an elephant, so it's shaped like an elephant. And the elephant's belly rotates, and there are 
shapes there. So, you know, a circle, a square, a triangle, all the little shapes. And you have to spin it around so that you find the right hole. Now, you're supposed to spin it with the tail of the elephant. The little boy that I mentioned earlier that I'm seeing didn't do that. He just went straight for spinning it with his fingers, but that's okay. And, you know, quickly found where all the shapes go. So really, really cute toy, really fun to look at. The other thing that I like about this toy is that you push the elephant's ears and then the, the shapes come out of his trunk. So, again, isn't that a great toy? Not only does he... Can a child put the shapes in the right place so there's, you know, there's some variety of there because he's problem solving. He's figuring out which shape goes in the right hole. But if he's using the tail to spin it, that's another movement. And then when he's ready for the shapes to come out, if he doesn't have too many in there, now it can get full and the shapes pour out anyway, but you know, that's another issue. But then we teach him to push the ears and let the shapes fall out. So isn't that a great thing to do? A toy where we're looking at, you know, those were three different things three different actions that we could have that child perform. So uh, my very favorite shape sorter is in that article that I mentioned earlier, the first session's toy list for toddlers. And, again, you can see that on the homepage at teachmetotalk.com. So another kind of novel shape sorter because the shape, uh, when you put the shape in the hole, it makes a weird sound, you know, like, and kids like that. So if you have a child that's not really motivated by a really simple shape sorter, that might be something that you can look at. And, again, tons of variety out there. Go shopping. Find yourself some, some different versions of that. Uh, I want you to think about other early toys, too. And, again, you might have thought about these before as baby toys. But if you have a toddler, if you have a two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old who's not playing with toys, gosh, you've got to back him up. And a lot of times we go you know, we think, oh, he's not into this. Let me just go with something harder. Okay, let me find something older. Okay, let me. And then you end up trying to get a two-year-old to play with a toy that's designed for a six-year-old. That never works. It never works. You've got to go the other way and look at toys that are easier, okay? And, this, again, this is not applicable to every single child. You may have some late talkers for whom cognition is not a problem at all, and they are playing beautifully. And so for these kids, you're not going to do this. You won't back up with those kids. But for kids that you are kind of scratching your head and thinking, what am I going to do now? I can't get him to do anything. He doesn't like anything. Always try simple first, okay? So let's just think about some other kinds of toys that you might have ruled out because you thought that they were too simple. An idea that I heard at Carol Westby, and I used to have pop beads. Do you know what I'm talking about? It is kind of a baby toy, but those plastic beads that hook together. You know, there's a circle on one end, and there's a little plug on the other end, and you pop them all together. I used to have those a long time ago, but for some reason I quit taking those. I quit using those. And then as I was sitting through her course on play, I thought, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe I forgot about that. And, and again, why is this important? It's because you're teaching a child that variety of movements and learning more about how the world works. So with the pop bead, what's he learning? He's learning, well, first, of course, I'm going to pull apart. And secondly, he's going to learn after that, I can push him back together and make that line really, really long again. Let me see how many pop beads I can get strung here together. So if you're kids who like to line things up, like all they do is line up Thomas, the trains, pop beads would be a great toy for you to try with them, okay? It's a little, it's kind of on that same, I want to line everything up. So this visual pattern is very interesting to me. You know, and if he's not yet learned it, Hook the magnets together for Thomas. This is kind of a natural extension of that, or actually it's before that. It would be kind of what comes before. So look at things like poppies. Think about another kind of popular toy, those pop and pal toys that we've talked about, only pushing buttons. You know, you may have a mom who says, oh, you're asking about play, and she says, oh, here are all his favorite toys. And he might have five or six things that he really, really loves, but you look at them, and pushing is the only thing that he's doing with those toys. And he might be like the little boy that I talked about a second ago. He can push, but he really has no regard for what comes next. Don't let a kid get stuck like that. You've got to look for variety. And, again, variety with what you can do with one toy, if that's applicable or possible. Some toys that you can only do one thing with. But um, 
you know, again, you're really, really going to look for a variety in what a kid can do with one toy and then a variety of toys overall. Now, let me talk really, really quickly about um, learning how to use functional objects. And that's just, you know, helping a kid understand we put a hat on a head, we put a shoe on a foot, we stir with a spoon, we drink with a cup. Baby dolls and accessories are fantastic for that, but for lots and lots of kids who are at this developmental level who haven't mastered those early play skills, that's even still too hard. So what you do for those kinds of kids is you start with them using the object on themselves or on mom, okay? So look at that. Think about that. Hopefully I'll give you some ideas today to get you started if you're working with a child who's not playing with toys yet. And hopefully after listening to this, you're going to think about it a little bit more and you understand how play is so important, that critical process of looking at the life. Thanks so much. Enjoy Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.